In Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, we see that Haggai, that Haggai and um, Zechariah are both prophesying during the time of Ezra. And they have showed up in chapter 5, verse 1. They are speaking the word of the Lord during a 15-year period in which the temple building has been caused to cease by outside influence and the governing authorities saying, stop, but also, as we learned in the book of Haggai last week, also because of apathy and a lack of zeal on behalf of the Jewish people who have returned. So there's a double thing going. And the prophet Haggai stands up and preaches first. And he preaches four sermons spread out over several months. And then Zechariah prophesies somewhere between the second sermon and the last sermon. And he gives a, a long, full prophecy that is uh, very hefty. Now, I just want to say this from the outset. We're not walking through Zechariah. There's a lot in Zechariah that we could cover, that we could spend a long time preaching expositionally through Zechariah. That's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is get the gist of Zechariah, the main points, and we're going to look specifically at the visions that he has in chapters 1 through 6. Yes, I did say six chapters. Don't worry, we're not going to read all six chapters. We're going to read portions and, and take from the beginning. So uh, let's start this morning by just reading Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, which is the introduction to the book. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. <clears throat> Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I have commanded, my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, that introduction gives us some shape to the point of Zechariah. Zechariah is a book that is about the salvation of the Lord and the return, the call to return and repent and trust in Jesus. Now, whenever we are dealing with an Old Testament prophet and we say something like it's a call to trust in Jesus, we need to understand that what they were hearing was a call to trust in the coming Messiah. We are looking back at this from a lens by which we cannot help but look back on, which is the true lens of Jesus Christ. The reason we look back with that lens at the Old Testament is because He's the central figure 
in the Old and New Testament. So the lens that we view the Bible through is the lens of Jesus Christ, rightly so. So when somebody, and I, I tell you that to tell you this, because when somebody, an academic or some theologian or some uh, even some pastors tell you you can't look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, you tell them why not Jesus shows up in the first chapter. He's in the whole book. And they say, well, you're reading him into the book. And you go, no, he's there. There's a difference between reading something into a text and seeing something in the text that's already there. So, when we read the Old Testament, we need to understand that the Old Testament saints saw Jesus as the Messiah that was promised, as the seed of Abraham, as the great high priest who would come and overthrow sin. We read that in our prayer time this morning. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That is echoed again in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where Jesus is the high priest who has made atonement for our sins. We look at the Old Testament with this lens of Jesus because it's the right lens by which to look at the Old Testament. So when somebody tells you you have to look at the Old Testament from some foreign religious view, academically distancing yourself from the text, no, that's absurd. Jesus is in the text. We are not imposing Him onto it. He's already there. So, when we read the Old Testament, that's one of the things that we need to understand. And the point of Zechariah is that salvation of the Lord is coming. And so we must look upon Him. We must look upon God, Yahweh, who is Jesus. Who Jesus is. So, first, uh, we see... Let's talk just briefly. Remember last week, Haggai is a very direct message. It's very direct. He says things like, get about the work of rebuilding and pay for the building. He, he gets about those things. He's very direct. Haggai is a very simple message, very easy, very straightforward. There's nothing really hidden or complex about Haggai's message, he doesn't deal in eschatology much. He doesn't dip his toe into uh, deep hidden secrets about, or not even secrets, God's not hidden. He doesn't deal in hidden things that people want to, uh, you, you can't take Haggai and go, like nobody does numerology with Haggai, right? Do you know what numerology is? That's where you take uh, words and put them in numbers and you go, well, this number is 666 and so therefore it's blah, 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 blah. Like that's where you do those things. Nobody does that with Haggai. Haggai's like, you read Haggai and there's two points. Rebuild the temple and use your money for the Lord. This is the two points. It's really simple, right? He's very simple. And the principles that were expressed that we saw last week in Haggai, Haggai, sorry, were God is sovereign over your failures and your successes. God is with you in your obedience and he is also around in your disobedience. And that God brings peace to those who trust and follow Him. <clears throat> now, Zechariah is a little bit more indirect. The theme of Zechariah is obviously the salvation of the Lord, and that you the application is that you should look upon the Lord. Now, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. This means, these Hebrew words, Zechariah, Berechiah, and Edo, mean the Lord remembers, the son of the Lord blesses, 
the son of timing. And this is, uh, this is adequate for us. And, and timing, by the way, just in case you're going to do a Hebrew study, the word timing there, I'm, I'm kind of abstractly defining that. It's, the root word is time, but like, uh, scheduled time, like that kind of idea. So, Edo meaning timing. You'll hear it said other ways too. It could mean eternity. It could mean, you know, something to do with timing, but it has to do with points on a timeline. So Edo here, the Lord remembers the son of the Lord blesses the son of timing. This is a, a great name for Zechariah because he covers the timing through the Old Testament and the timing through the New Testament and even uh, into the end times. And at the end of his book, he's covering a lot of things that we would say are probably end times prophecies, second coming of Jesus prophecies. And so he, uh, Zechariah, could be translated this way. The Lord remembers to bless in his time. The Lord remembers the blessings in his time. So that it's apt for Zechariah because as Zechariah stands to preach, remember what we've seen in Ezra. They've stopped building for 15 years. And Zechariah is looking at the people. Haggai has just preached two messages at least where he starts talking about, um, about the blessing of the Lord being poured on the people and, and how you need to obey so that you'll get the blessing of the Lord that because you have not obeyed in building the temple, God has put holes in your pockets. Don't you see? And Haggai's preached this message and then Zechariah stands up. The Lord remembers the blessings in his time. And he goes, Zechariah stands up amidst the call to rebuild and says, it's time. It's time to rebuild. The Lord is remembering his blessings at the right time. Now, the theme of Zechariah, the Lord will bring salvation to his people through the priest king. We see this two times in the visions, once in the middle of the visions and once at the end of the visions. And over and over throughout the book, you see hints of this repeated, that there is a priest king who's going to come, who's going to rule over the people, who is going to be the priest king of Jerusalem, and he is going to bless the nations. And the whole world will come to him. The whole world will come to him. Gee, doesn't that sound like somebody we know? The whole world's going to come to him. Everybody's invited. And he is going to call to himself people who are not of the flock of Israel. And people who are of the flock of Israel. He's going to call them in and they will be his and they will be his flock. And he's going to graft in to his own olive branch those who were not of his branch, and he's going to graft them in. This is the priest king who is coming. It comes over and over in this text. This is one of those prophets that you read and you look at the modern Jewish rabbis and you go, how do you not see it? How do you not see this? This is one of them. So the Lord will bring salvation to his people through the prophet king. So first, we see in Zechariah, Look upon the Lord's person. Then we see look upon the Lord's purposes. And then we see look upon the Lord's promises. That can be divided out pretty easily. This is, I'm starting to give you an outline of the book. Look on, on the Lord's person is chapters 1 
through uh, chapter 6. It's got a series, depending on how you divide out the uh, the visions, you've got a series of visions. There's either seven of them or ten of them, depending on how you divide them out and what you include as a vision. This is um, pretty clear. He has at least eight direct, clear visions. Two of them often get put together, the flying scroll and the woman in the basket. Sounds really weird. It is. So there's the flying scroll and the woman in the basket vision, and they often get put together. They're even lumped together in one chapter uh, when we made the chapter divisions. And then uh, they've got the last one, which is which isn't so much a vision as much as he comes. Uh, Zechariah goes to the house of the high priest and crowns, puts a crown on the head of Joshua, the son of the high priest, and then makes this kind of display and then takes the crown and puts it in the temple. And it's this symbol of Christ. The Lord saves Joshua, uh, who, you know, we call Jesus being the king and priest of the people in the temple of God, in the hearts of his people and in the temple that he reigns in. So you've got that look upon his person. And each vision gives us some insight into the personhood and person of God, the character of God. Second, look upon his purposes. Chapters 7 and 8 end up kind of telling you about the purposes that God is going to do. And we see when the heart is right, the work is right. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, of course. And the Lord intends to be... He intends Jerusalem and the people of God to be a blessing to the world. That all nations would come and be blessed by this priest king and his people. And then we have look upon the Lord's promises. And that's the one where if we were doing exposition of this, you would be very, 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 very excited to uh, engage in discussion at lunch about these things. And I would encourage it, and we would encourage it here. But the but today is not the point for that. We're doing an overview. So this is the Lord's promises, and it's that the Lord will save. Uh, in chapter 9, the Lord will save. Uh, Jesus, in chapter 9, shows up as the king coming on the, the back of a donkey, of a colt. Here, chapter 9, verse 9, it says... Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Um, in fact, let me see. Okay, yeah. Rejo- rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. <clears throat> Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, let's. that's in chapter 9. That kicks off the in times kind of discussions and the the um, the greater eschatological purpose that points both to Jesus' first coming and his second one. So we've got the eight visions. You've got the horsemen in chapter 1, verse 7 through 17. You've got the horns and the craftsmen in chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. And then you've got the tape measuring angel. Now this is my own uh, description the tape measuring angel, it's because this tape measuring angel shows up in multiple prophets. 
One of the most famous ones is in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel walks around behind the guy and he keeps telling him, write this down, so many cubits by so many cubits, write this down, this stone is this big, and this wall is this big, and this is this big, and this is this long, and he gets out into a river where it gets like ankle deep, and he's the angel keeps stopping to tell him, write down how deep this is, write down how deep this is, write down how deep this is, until it gets so deep that they can't be in the river anymore, and they have to wait on the side, and there's this massive river, so this is the tape measure an angel. He shows up in Ezekiel. He shows up in Jeremiah. He shows up in Zechariah. He shows up in a couple minor prophets very briefly as well. Um, so tape measure an angel in chapter two. Then we have Joshua and the accuser in chapter three. Joshua, the high priest and the accuser in chapter three. Then we have uh, in these eight visions, the golden lampstand in chapter four. Uh, the golden lampstand, which is fed by two olive branches that give it eternal light that are uh, pouring oil into the golden lampstand. So there's two branches that are bringing oil into the lampstand permanently. The branches being the priest and the king that give oil to the lampstand forever. The lampstand has seven flames on it and they never go out. It's kind of cool, right? Then we've got... The flying scroll and the woman in the basket. Again, odd one. The woman in the basket being wickedness and the flying scroll uh, being God's word and judgment over all the people of the earth. It's a scroll flying around and it sees everything. Then you've got the crown and the temple in chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Now, you have uh, more. First, let's talk about looking upon the Lord's person. This is, this is looking upon the Lord's person. That's eight visions. Uh, at, I've, I've sectioned it out to eight visions with a final uh, story. And then you've got look upon the Lord's purposes again. And, and so let's talk about looking upon the Lord's purposes. There are two key points in chapters 7 and 8. The two key points are when the heart is right, the work is right. If you look at chapter 7... And you just kind of scan through, you'll see that he is telling them to return to the Lord. In verse 9, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the sojourner or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart, but they refuse to pay attention and turn. So the Lord calls them to repent and tells them to live righteously. And then in chapter 8, he explains that they are the people of God and need to return. The, when the heart is right, the work is right. Should we fast? Yes, you should fast. But only if your heart is fasting in the right place or if you're trying to bring your heart in line to the right place. Whereas what many people do is go to worship the Lord with no, no hope of putting their heart in the right place first or even during their worship. Instead, what tends to happen is they tend to go through the motions and they tend to cease to build the temple of God with right motives and they begin to live wrong. So there's first the call when the heart is right, the work is right. So should we do this? Yes, yes. If your heart is right, the work will be right. 
If your heart is right, the work will be right. Second, the Lord intends Jerusalem to be a kingdom of blessing. The Lord intends Jerusalem to be a kingdom of blessing. There at the end of the chapter 8, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of the Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So he says, My intention is that my people would bless the nations and that the nations would come and get grafted in, taking hold of the robe, get grafted in to the kingdom and say, let us go with you for we want to worship your God. That's us. We got in the book. We made it. We, we were invited in. We get to grab hold. Of Jesus, we get to grab, we get to be a part of the people of God. We get invited in. This isn't a kingdom that's just for one nation of people. It's a kingdom for all nations that God has divined that we would be able to be grafted in, that we would be called His sheep of His pasture, that He, that His sheep hear His voice, and He calls them by name, and they come to Him. And indeed, He has called us by name. And we get to go to Him. We get to be part of it. We get in the book. We we made it in the book. Next, we have look upon the Lord's purpose. Look upon the Lord's person. Look upon the Lord's purpose. Look upon the Lord's promises. And in chapter 9 through 14, we have two oracles. The first oracle is chapter 9 through 11. The coming Messiah. Now, depending on what commentator you read, you're going to have a lot of... And I'm I'm telling you this because I do expect that some of you are going to be excited about Zechariah and you're going to go read a bunch of people about it. So depending on what kind of commentator you read, this could go all over the map. You could have people uh, supposing that this is about Alexander the Great rising and then the Lord saying he's going to conquer him and then Rome rising and the Lord saying he's going to conquer him and then and then culminating with the Messiah coming and then this promise that he's going to have victory in chapters 9 through 11. Um, maybe. Let's just say that. Maybe. If it's not explicitly stated in Scripture, then you are speculating. And if it's not explicitly stated in Scripture, then it's not intended for you. It's, oh, but grab, like, have fun with it. Think about it. Think deeply. Challenge yourself. Have opinions. Have opinions. Please have opinions that differ from mine. If we all agree on secondary issues, then life is boring. Please have opinions. Please bring them up. Please feel free to argue your opinions on secondary issues, if it's not explicitly stated in scriptures, feel free. This, Alexander's name is nowhere in this text. Just, Greece is mentioned. And so they go, obviously, it's Alexander the Great. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's just Hellenism was on the rise and the prophets saw that that's a great nation and you put it in there. Maybe. Maybe... This is talking about philosophy. Maybe. You can get all kinds of ideas. And I just want to caution you as you read. Remember that explicitly stated things 
We don't argue about it. We go, yep, that's what it says. It says that, so we believe it. Things that can be speculated or debated, the things, we are Christians, we welcome the debate. We don't run from deep thoughts. We welcome them and we welcome the challenge because in the Christian community, when we challenge each other, we get stronger. We get stronger. Even if we come away from that challenge going, you know, I just don't see it the same way. It's fine. Let's have some pie. It's great. So, as we read, remember chapters 9 through 11, talk about the coming Messiah. And we see that particularly, we read that in verse 9. Luke talks about, and Matthew talks about, the king who comes on a colt. And this is the king. Jesus Christ came on a colt. He's very clearly the the one who is referenced there. And then in chapter 9, verse 11 through 12, we see this phrase, as for as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your strongholds, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you, restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim as my arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. There's where the Greece is mentioned. And wield you like a warrior's sword. So Jesus saves his people here. In verse 14 through, 9, 14 through 17 in chapter 9, it says, Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched that is like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of, the, of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Chapters 12 through 14 Basically, Jesus wins. The Messiah wins. Christ comes and is victorious and wins in chapter 12 through 14. So in the first oracle, we have the Lord will save. And then we have this, this exposition of the Lord being their shepherd. This is echoed again in the book of Ezekiel. It's why we read that at the beginning of the service, chapter 34. God says earlier in the chapter, the shepherds of Israel have failed the people, so I will come and be their shepherd. So the Lord will be the shepherd of his people. The Lord will save. In Zechariah 9.9, we saw that. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout to the daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We see that in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey in the the triumphant uh, day when he comes walking in and all the people throw palm branches on the ground, say, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Lord is saved. He's coming, he's coming. He's come to save. And then he comes 
and He saves, but not the way they thought He would. He saves by dying in their place and rescuing them from sin. Then we have this first oracle, the Lord will save. Then we have the Lord will shepherd. And here we have the Lord will shepherd in verse 10. I mean, in chapter 10, verses 6 6 through 12, it says, I will strengthen Judah and I will save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. The Ephraimites will be become like warriors. Their hearts will be glad with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them and <clears throat> gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. So the Lord is promising the people that He is going to restore them, and it's going to be as numerous as as before, he's going to expand their borders. Not, though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will survive and they will return. The exile is a foreshadowing of what happens in spiritual reality of people getting saved and brought back to the kingdom of God. Then we have, I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria and bring them to Gilead and Lebanon. And there will not be enough room for them. This is great. He's going to gather so many people that there's not enough room in the city of Jerusalem. It has to expand. Now, there's a great, just kind of side note, Jerusalem is one kilometer across right now. One kilometer across is how big Jerusalem is across. You can walk across that. That's that's what a, a kilometer is, a, a mile point six. Is that what it is? Um, or maybe a, a mile is a is 1.6 kilometers. Yeah, so a mile is 1.6 kilometers. So uh, it's less than a mile across Jerusalem. Now, in the new heavens and new earth that's described in Revelation, the city is 200, I mean 2,220 kilometers across. God is going to expand. God is going to expand Jerusalem. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have entered into the kingdom of heaven. And in the new heavens and new earth described in Revelation, this city is massive. It says here, I will gather them and there's not enough room. This temple is inadequate. Can you imagine Zechariah saying this prophecy in front of the foundations of the temple, which haven't even been finished? And he's going, this isn't big enough. This isn't, it's going to be bigger. It's going to be better. It's going to be huge. He keeps going. They will pass through the sea of trouble. Surging sea will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down and Egypt's scepter will pass away. That's actually a reference to the horns, the pride and the scepter. The horns kind of represent that. So the pride and the scepter will be will pass away. I will strengthen them and the Lord in His name and they will live securely, declares the Lord. So the first oracle is He will save and He will shepherd. The second oracle, chapters 9 through 14... Chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, the Lord will save. Chapter 10, verses 13 through 9, I am calling Christus Victor, which is Christ wins. 
Christus Victor. It's a doctrine from the Reformation period. Christus Victor. Christ secures salvation and he is victorious over sin and death. Jesus wins. So the Lord will shepherd his people, the, the flock. Um, in the second oracle, the Lord will save. Christ wins. He is pierced. He cuts off idols. He destroys strongholds. He knocks down the enemy. He takes over everything. And He rules. And He reigns. And He wins. And we see that now and we will see it fully in the return of Jesus Christ. When He returns and gets His bride and He rules and reigns. Now, then we have Jesus wins and reigns in chapter 14. And in chapter 14 you have the battle of Megiddo. we call that Armageddon, which is a derivative of the Hebrew name Har, which means hill, Megiddo, which is the place. The hill at Megiddo. Har, Megiddo, Greek, comes in and you call it Armageddon, right? So whenever somebody says Armageddon, you should think Zechariah 14. So whenever somebody says Armageddon, think Zechariah 14. And if it's a Hollywood movie and it says Armageddon, look up Zechariah 14 and see all the places they mess it up. It's fun. Then you have Jesus winning and the kingdom is established at the end of the book. Now, all that said, let's dive in to the visions that are given in Zechariah. Because for our purposes of studying Ezra, this is very helpful. So the visions, remember, are looking at the person of the Lord. They're looking at the person of the Lord. And the visions go like this. You've got... um, the riders on the, you've got the riders on the horses. You've got the vision of the horns and the craftsmen. You've got the man with the measuring line. You've got Joshua, the high priest. You've got the vision of the lampstands. You've got the flying scroll, woman in the basket. Those often get lumped together because it's kind of one uh, consistent vision, but it's two different visions that are lumped together. And you've got the uh, four chariots in chapter six, verses one. Through eight, and then you've got the crown and the temple at the end of chapter six, which is when he gives the crown to the high priest, and the high priest wears it for a moment in emblem of Christ. Now, the first one is the vision of the riders on horses. There are three horses, three different colors. The rider, the main rider, he's in a, a myrtle grove. There's a bunch of trees, and he's riding a red horse. And there's a red horse. There's a sorrel horse or speckled horse or dappled horse or muddy looking horse. However you want to describe it, that's what it is. And then there's a white horse. Um, Now, they are patrolling the earth. In verse 11, it says, And they answered, The angel of the Lord who was standing among the murder trees said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now, the angel of the Lord who is on the red horse, is standing there, and he's kind of in this passive position. He doesn't have a sword. He's not. uh, He doesn't look like he's bringing wrath. He's in a passive position. There's a bunch of horses behind him, a whole bunch, and they're all different colors. They're all white, uh, speckled, or red. Note, there's the absence of the black one. That will come into play later. There's the absence of the dark horse. There instead is these other ones. Now they've been patrolling the earth and they've seen all of the earth. They've, that's what they've done. All these, all these horses that are behind them have been patrolling the earth, kind of seeing what's going on. So God 
knows everything that's going on. And then Zechariah asks, what's going on? The angel first says, "What do you know what these are? And Zechariah goes, of course not. And then the angel explains, and the angel on the red horse responds to him. We've been patrolling the earth. We've been patrolling the earth. Now, a lot of people think, a lot of scholars think that this angel is emblematic or a type for Christ. Because the other horses are answering to him. And they're coming to him, and they're giving him, they're telling him what's been going on. But he is actively involved in their investigation. Now, the angel of the Lord on the red horse, in verse 12, cries out to the Lord on behalf of the people. In verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? So this angel cries out to the Lord on behalf of the people. How long are you going to be mad at them? How long are we going to stay this angry? How long are we going to, are we going to have this going on? So the angel of the Lord appears And then in verse 17 of this vision, the Lord will comfort Zion. It says, cry out again. This is a command to Zechariah. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, this angel who cries out to the Lord intercedes on behalf of the people, just like Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus sees everything going around on the earth. He sees everything about you. He sees everything in your life and in the lives surrounding you. And yet he still intercedes on your behalf. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, there's a legal intercession. That he is legally interceding on your behalf as your advocate before the Father. You come to yourself, you look in the mirror late at night or in the morning, and you see who you are. Do you know what I'm talking about? You understand? When you look in the mirror and you see who you are, like not just, not just the, what needs to be trimmed or fixed or combed, but you see who you are in those moments. They've been called in history the dark night of the soul, and you see who you are, and in those moments, He is our advocate. He stands before the Father. I write this to you, little children, that you may not sin, but when you do, Know that you have an advocate before the Father who is interceding on your behalf. Jesus is standing before the Father on your behalf. In Romans 8.34 and in Hebrews 7.25, it says He's interceding on our behalf even now before the throne. He's interceding on your behalf in your need, in your groaning, in your desperation, in those moments when you desperately need help. He is interceding on your behalf. In John 14, which we talked about earlier, He promises He will never leave. That He will never leave. That He will indwell you. That indwelling is then talked about in the book of Colossians chapter 3. The Holy Spirit indwells your life. In Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit lives inside you. That you have exchanged sin and death for life. That you have exchanged the flesh for the Spirit. That you live with the Spirit inside you. Now, the Holy Spirit is promised. Jesus never leaves us and intercedes on our behalf. This vision tells us something about the nature of Christ, and that is that He is always present and never leaves. He is omniscient and knows everything, and yet still remains. The Lord decides that He will stay. The Lord does not leave us. The second vision, the vision of the horns 
and the craftsmen. This is a very apt vision for the people of Ezra because literally they need to build. They need to build. And there's been horns or legal proclamation, you know, the horns that you would blow that represent pride. There's been pride that has gotten in the way. And that pride has come. The, the horns are pride and fierceness. That's what they kind of represent all throughout the prophetic letters that represent pride and fierceness. And they have come and they have ceased the building. Well, what do you need when you have something that needs to be built? You need craftsmen. So the Lord will send craftsmen. He will send workers. He's going to send these four workers and they're going to cast down the horns here in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. He's going to send these craftsmen. And then in verse 21, it says, and what are these coming to do? And the angel tells Zechariah, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. So these are the ones that made everybody nervous and like put their head down. Right? That's what they were. These are the adversaries that we read about in, his, in Ezra chapter 3 and 4. Right? They, that rose up. And he says, they've come and these have come. The, uh, the craftsmen have come to terrify them. To cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns and scattered the land of Judah to scatter it. So these horns have tried to stop the building of Jerusalem, to stop the building of the temple. And God sent craftsmen who are going to terrify the horns. Now, I think it's awesome that the way God terrifies our enemy is through people who build up the temple. People who build up the body. For our purposes, people who build up the body of Christ. For we are the temple of the living God. This is the way that God operates. In the second vision, the craftsmen throw down the horns. Now we get to the third vision. The tape measure, the tape measuring angel is interrupted. He's literally interrupted. He's, he starts talking and then somebody runs up and there's an interruption in his vision. As, um, with the craftsmen, as we do the work, the enemies, there will be enemies, but the Lord will empower and inspire His work as we saw in Ezra 4 and in Haggai. The Lord will empower and inspire His work and His workers will overcome. Remember that Jesus will build His church. It's By the way, it's not an accident that Jesus is the son of a carpenter and this vision is that way. It's not an accident. He will build His church and the horns that stand against His people will flee. Uh, vision three is the tape measuring angel. He comes and he calls people to come back from Babylon because the Lord is expanding his city. He says, come back from Babylon. The Lord is expanding his city. Look at verse 11 of chapter two. It says, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Many nations will come and join with the people of God. We made it twice so far. Well, this is the first time. We made it twice into the book. We're in the book twice. The Gentiles get grafted in. That's many nations. That's us. We get to be, unless you have Jewish background. I don't, I don't want to be insensitive. If you have Jewish background, well, then maybe there's something else. But many nations includes those of us who are not 
ethnically, racially, religiously Jewish. That's what this prophecy is including here. You are grafted in. You get, this is about you here. You get to be a part. You made it in. So Jesus grafts in the church. Many nations come, uh, shall join themselves to the Lord. Jesus grafts in the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, he grafts in the church and then he, he builds his church. Indeed, in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, remember what it says? That as many who were appointed came and there were people coming to believe in Jesus and they become saved. I would testify and argue that God saves souls and is still saving souls today. This is not done. He's not finished. He didn't stop saving people. He's still saving people today. He's still expanding the borders of his kingdom. The gospel is moving forward. The gospel is not losing. We are not losing. We have already won and the gospel is going forth. So we see Jesus is victorious and moving forward. He's expanding his kingdom. In verses 8 and 9 of that chapter, of chapter 2, he promises protection for his people. In particular... In verse 8 and 9, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent to me to the nations, uh, to plunder, who plundered you, for he who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. Just pause for a second. You gotta be very careful when people attack the people of God. When outside people attack the people of God, be it the church or God's chosen people in the Old Testament, when he When they are attacked, you ought to be very careful because God says right here, you are touching the apple of his eye, the preciousness that he loves deeply. Verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served him. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So he uh, says that he will protect his people here. And What a joy that would be if you were in Ezra and Nehemiah's time and you were looking at the temple and going, well, I'm I'm gifted to build. I got to build stuff, but I know that there are going to be people who are going to come and maybe even physically try to stop me. Lord, I'm afraid of the armies that are going to come. And then he says, don't worry, I'm going to come and I'm going to protect you. Now, um, we've got the vision of the tape measuring angel. God will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem in chapter two, verse five. The Lord will protect his people in chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. And the Lord will come back to his people in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Then we have the vision of the high priest. And this is a critical one. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our great high priest who stands on our behalf. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He's the propitiation for our sins or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the high priest who rescues us who saves us and who has redeemed us, and he is forever. Our high priest does not die. Now, there's a great vision that happens in this chapter. Joshua, the high priest, stands before the Lord, and he's accused by the accuser. And there's a fantastic image of him being covered in the righteousness of God. He gets an exchange of clothing before the king. I would love to sit and talk about this passage all day. Instead, I got two books by R.C. Sproul on the back table that are The Priest with the Dirty Clothes. If you don't have a copy, please take one and read it with your kids. I guarantee that you will not be able to read some of it to your kids without crying. 
because it's one of those books that talks about the truth of Jesus Christ's righteousness covering us in such a way that it burns to the heart. So uh, take those and that will be your extra credit. Um, the, so he's got the vision of the high priest and the branch is mentioned here that will cover us in his righteousness. This branch is obviously Jesus Christ. As you can see in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Philippians 3, verse 9, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Um, so the vision, then you have the vision of the lampstand. So let's just real, real briefly pause and understand this truth, that Jesus Christ saves us and our iniquity is cleansed. We're done. We're free from it. He rescued us. Our iniquity is cleansed. Then you have the lampstands, and there's seven lights on the lampstand. And we have the theme of the lampstands being that Zerubbabel will win. Remember, Zerubbabel is the descendant of David. He's the emblematic picture of the king. You had Joshua in the previous chapter, the emblematic picture of the priest. You've got Zerubbabel in this chapter being the emblematic picture of the king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel will win by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, just in case Zerubbabel was going to get a big head about it, Zechariah reminds him in verse... Let's see, it's in verse um, 7. Oh, I'm sorry, that's chapter 8. Okay. In verse 6, he says... And this is not, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He will win, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit. So Zerubbabel is going to win by the power of the Spirit of God, and the lampstands are, are fed by two branches. And the two branches, clearly the picture of the priest and the king feeding the lampstand forever. Now, we have the vision of the flying scroll and the woman. I've lumped these together because uh, a lot of scholars do, and it's just easier to cover them, and we're running out of time. So here they go. The flying scroll and the woman. The first one, the flying scroll, no one escapes judgment. He sees this image of a flying scroll, and it says I, in verse 4 of chapter 5, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timbers and stone. So judgment flies about the earth and sees everything, and everything it sees, it consumes. We will one day stand before the, the king of glory and there will be the bema seat of judgment where all of our works will be tested before him and many will be burned off this is in first and second corinthians it's also in uh the letters to the thessalonians we will stand before him all of our things will be tested by fire and some of us will make it in as one escaping from fire with nothing the flying scroll, God sees everything. He sees it all. And it all will be judged. So no one escapes judgment. Then you've got the woman, which is this really weird vision where there's a basket and it's got like a lead lid on it. And he walks over to the basket and he lifts open the lid and there's a woman in there. And it doesn't say anything about her. just says she's in there. And they quickly close the lid. It's weird. He opens it up and then closes it and they shut it. And then two 
godly angel-like women come pick up the basket and fly it back to Babylon. Weird. But then the angel explains, the woman is wickedness. The woman is wickedness. And she has no place in the house of God. She has no place in the house of God. And so they fly her far away and they put her on some hill way off somewhere else. And the idea is that wickedness will be removed from the people of God. God cleanses His people and they will be free. God will cleanse His people. Listen, if you are someone right now struggling to war against sin and you are having difficulty, I want you to hear this. God has rescued you from sin in Jesus Christ. That sin has no power over you. God has rescued you from sin in Jesus Christ. You have been made victorious and you can and will overcome because He overcame. More than that, God has the power to take that thing and fly it thousands of miles away from you. God will cleanse His people. The question is, will you make it painful for yourself or will you make it pleasure for yourself? Will you delight in the cleansing by going to the community of faith and walking closely with people who can call you on stuff and who can, who can help build you up and being transparent knowing that the Lord will protect you? Or will you hide? Or will you hide? I just want to encourage you. You can hide. You can hide. And it will be a long, slow, painful process. Or you can do what we say here and struggle together to overcome because the Lord, by His Spirit, has empowered you to overcome. There's an application question for you just very plainly we won't dwell on it much longer god will cleanse his people this is the person of god he cleanses his people so then we have the vision of the four chariots red dapple white and this time a black horse so this is the bringing justice and judgment to the whole earth he brings justice and judgment to the whole earth and that which is in turmoil is now at rest at the end of this vision at the end of the vision uh, verse 8 says, Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go to the north, which was the black and the white, my spirit is at rest in the north country. So God brings rest to the earth through justice and judgment. This is the same vision that we see of the four horsemen. So there's the man on the red horse. There's the four horns and the four craftsmen. There's the surveyor or the measuring angel. And then there's the cleansing of the high priest. You've got these four as the first four visions. I want you to note one, two, three, four. They go in an order. There's omniscience. There's power to cleanse. There's the reach of God and the expanding of His kingdom. And then there's the high priest. You got it? Those are the first four. Second four. Four B. The lampstand with the two olive trees. And the king is made king. Zerubbabel wins. The king wins. You've got the high priest and the king there in the middle. 3B, the flying scroll, which is a mirror of the tape measuring angel. God's reach is everywhere. 
The first reach was to expand the kingdom. This reach is to purify and see the kingdom. Right, the flying scroll. And then you've got the woman in the basket. The next one, wickedness is removed. Or the power to overcome sin and cleanse. Wickedness is removed and sent back to Babylon. Just like the horns are scared away by the building of the temple of God. The horns are scared away by the building of the temple of God. And then you've got the four chariots, which mirror the horses at the beginning. But this time it's judgment. Last time it was searching out and examining and patrolling. This time it's judgment. And in this you have what's called a Hebrew chiastic structure. Meaning it makes an X that points to something in the middle. And that something in the middle is the prophet of the priest who becomes king. Which is then explained in the final vision or the final uh, story here. Where Zechariah goes to crown the king. Crowned the prophet king. In verse 12 of chapter 5, I mean chapter 6, it says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne... And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the sons of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So we have this beautiful ending part to the vision where the king is the priest. And you have this incredible scene where, imagine it, Zechariah walks in and he crowns the priest, the high priest as king. And then they give this prophecy of the branch that will stand, the branch which we know to be Jesus will stand and will rule and will be king and will be Lord and will save us from our sins. And then he says, I'm going to take this crown and I'm going to put it in the temple. And this crown is going to be a picture of what is to come in Jesus Christ. At the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, remember the walls are rebuilt, the temple is done, and they need the prophet, priest, king, Jesus to come live in their midst to make them holy and to bring life. Indeed, we have that prophet, priest, king, Jesus. So final instructions from the book of Zechariah in chapter 8, verse 16 through 23. Verse 16 of chapter 8 would encourage us to live in integrity. These things, these are the things that you shall do. This is blatant instruction. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oaths. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Speak the truth to one another. Doesn't that resemble Ephesians? Speak the truth in love. Live and love one another. Then we have second 
verses 18 through 19, it says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast and the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. For lo- Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So the last, the next instruction that we can cling to here. First, live lives with integrity. Second, worship. Love, truth, and peace. Feast to the Lord in your worship. Your worship should be feast and life. Offer your lives as living sacrifices to the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship, Romans 12. This is who you are. You worship the Lord. Call everyone. Verse 20 through 23, the final instruction that we can cling to. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Wouldn't that be great if you woke up in the morning and your neighbor was like, let's go to church. And they were just excited. Come on. That's what he's describing here. Let's go. Woo-hoo! And you're like, you're, you never talk to me all week. You just go inside and outside that house. But on Sunday, you want to go up and like, you're going to cheer. This is awesome. All right, let's do it. Right? Like this, this is great. So he describes this in verse 20. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, 10 men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of the Jews saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Call everyone to come. Call everyone. The application for us reading Zechariah is, is simple. As we labor to build the temple of God, that's us, the, the kingdom of God, the people of God. As we labor to build the temple, live with integrity, speak the truth, worship the Lord. It is time for feasting and worship. The Lord Jesus has come. We have salvation. We can rejoice and worship. And then three, call everyone. Tell everyone about it. Let everyone know. Let everyone.